Penn also has a fairly unique, I never like to use the word unique because I don't know of all universities in the world, but fairly unique conflict of interest policy, which says that, again, at the time of licensing, our faculty can't be majority owners of the company. They have to be a minority owner. And so when we set up Upstart, we set it up in a fashion so that basically Penn and the faculty would split the company and we would be partners in building it. And then, of course, our faculty want to own as much of the company as they can. And so a couple of years ago, we were able to push through the administration to say, yes, we will keep the faculty just below majority ownership, but we will hold them there and Penn will take the dilution from bringing on the management. Michael Poizel is the executive director of PCI Ventures, the unit responsible for University of Pennsylvania's spin-out portfolio, which is more than 250 companies strong. He discusses his wish for Penn to have its own startup fund, the importance of diversity and leadership, and he ponders how he's found a new appreciation for the roller coaster of emotions a CEO goes through since he became acting chief executive of his own startup. Outside the US, Michael recently discovered a passion for Romania after an exchange program brought him to the Eastern European country, which is still at the beginning of its tech transfer ecosystem. He shares his hopes for the nation and how he might be able to help. My name is Thierry Hiles, and you are listening to Talking Tech Transfer. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Terry. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I am honored that you are able to join us. To start with an easy one, can you give me an overview of PCI Ventures with some headline figures if you have them? Certainly. So my group here at the University of Pennsylvania helps to manage a lot of the incubation ecosystem at the university. And what that means is not only is it helping faculty to start companies, but also to manage our physical incubator system. We opened our incubator six years ago, filled the building with companies, asked Penn for a second building, filled that one. And our third building opened last January. It's now full. And so Penn has announced that we're going to break ground next year on a 450,000 square foot new build. Wow. Uh, that'll be our fourth building. So it's been great. Wow. Where do you fit into the kind of bigger commercialization infrastructure at Penn? Yes, my group reports up through the tech transfer function. We are a part of that group, although considering we're on our own commercialization campus, we function somewhat autonomously, but we certainly report into them. Is there a certain point where you start working with a researcher as opposed to other functions within tech transfer, or is that kind of more of a sliding scale where you engage? For a lot of our relationships, they come through the licensing officers of the tech transfer function. They have a really close relationship with all of the faculty and have an idea of where they are in their journey and can help us to think about what's the best commercialization strategy. And if they agree with us that it would be advantageous to do it through a company, then we can start having those discussions with the faculty. There's a few programs that you run that I want to talk about more in detail, starting perhaps with Upstart. Can you tell me a little bit about this and what does it do? I think you were the one who set it up. Why did you create that and what have you learned since creating it? Sure. Upstart provides a service to the faculty so that they're able to be entrepreneurial while still staying at the university and operating within the particular policies and rules of Penn to make sure that they can be entrepreneurial, they can start a company and still do their day job and do what they're best at, which is staying in the lab and doing research. And so what Upstart is, is really a process by which faculty can create companies. We form the company for them. We do the back office legal work for them to get it all set up. And one of our biggest value propositions is that we actually find a management team to run the company. 
So unlike other universities, Penn does not allow faculty to be involved in the day-to-day operation of the business. And so we have to find them entrepreneurs to help them. And that's a lot of what we do is meeting entrepreneurs and trying to match them into the right projects. Once the entrepreneur is involved, then we help them to build the business. So what's the business strategy? How are we going to get it funded? How are we going to set up the operations? What markets are we going to go after? And really helping them to build that through day-to-day interaction with them, including being on the board of the company, which is also highly unusual. Most universities don't allow their employees to be on the board of private companies. But we believe at Penn, it helps us to manage the risk of all of this as if we're directly involved. And we really believe that we can add the most value if we're working with them day to day. Yeah. There's something that you said that that I think is quite interesting, which is that that you don't allow faculty to be involved in the management of the companies. Was that always the case or was that some kind of hard lesson that you learned along the way? (laughs) I'm sure there's a, a point in time back in Penn's past where it was a problem, but it predates me. Ever since I've been here, that's been the rule is that faculty need to hand off the business. They can be involved heavily in the beginning stages while we're getting it all set up. We want them to be very closely involved in picking who will be the management team to run the company. But once we get it operational, they need to start stepping back. And so by the time the technology gets licensed into the company, they can no longer be an officer. They can no longer be on the board. The best they can do is to be an advisor, chairman of the strategic advisory board or something like that. We can give them a vaunted title, but they can't actually have any fiduciary duty in the company. You made some changes to Upstars a couple of years ago now regarding the majority ownership and anti-dilution protection. Can you talk a little bit about this and what the changes have meant? Sure. Penn also has a fairly unique, I never like to use the word unique because I don't know of all universities in the world, but fairly unique conflict of interest policy, which says that, again, at the time of licensing, our faculty can't be majority owners of the company. They have to be a minority owner. And so when we set up Upstart, we set it up in a fashion so that basically Penn and the faculty would split the company and we would be partners in building it. But of course, our faculty want to own as much of the company as they can. And so a couple of years ago, we were able to push through the administration to say, yes, we will keep the faculty just below majority ownership, but we will hold them there and Penn will take the dilution from bringing on the manager team, hiring the CEO and hiring the team. And as we bring on those people and give them equity, that comes from Penn's share. And so that keeps the faculty at the limit of the policies for a longer period of time. And basically, we keep that in place all the way up until the first funding. And then once the company's funded, then the cap table's locked in and everybody gets diluted by investors from there. I find that quite interesting, especially because currently in the UK, there is a debate going on and it's been coming up again and again over the years about how much equity stake a university should take and how much the faculty member should take. And the narrative here goes that faculty members are always upset that they don't get enough of a stake. So it's quite interesting to hear that you have been quite successful with your model and they don't have a majority ownership from the get go. Yes, it it is uh, a challenge. And and certainly uh, it's a debate they have because their peer universities have different policies. And uh, across the United States, most of our peer players do allow majority ownership. The fundamental difference that I think makes it more palatable is that with this policy, the companies are allowed to sponsor research back into the lab of the faculty member, which our peer universities do not allow. Once the company is formed, there has to be a clear dividing line between the two, and the company can't have a relationship back to the university because the faculty member is on both sides. 
For us, they can. And I think that makes it quite attractive because as the company raises money, it invariably will sponsor research back into the lab. And that, of course, is attractive to the faculty member to have additional resources to continue their work. Yeah. Another program that you run is, I'm not sure if you pronounce it, Up Advisors or UP Advisors. <laughs> can you tell me a little bit more about, about that one and how it compares to Upstart? So we created that for a, a lighter touch model where we're not involved necessarily day to day, but it's for faculty that for a variety of reasons may want to do more of the, the lifting themselves. Maybe they already have relationship with investors. Maybe they already have a management team they want to use, but they're still not sure about the process and how it happens. And they want somebody there to hold their hand and guide them as they build their business. And so for that, we offer up advisors where we take a much smaller stake of equity and we walk along with them through the process. And we find that to be very attractive. It's also attractive for faculty that really are out to start with SBIRs, which are small business innovative research grants from the U.S. government. If they're going to start small and start in that way, and maybe the business isn't ready for a management team, it probably doesn't need all of the services of Upstart yet. So why not start it up advisors? And then we'll gauge later on as the company grows, whether they need more from us, and, and then we can transfer them to a higher level service. Is there any other ongoing support that you offer to startups once they are set up? There's two things we do. One, we offer service to the faculty before they start our company, just to offer them advice and counsel. If they have investors come to them and are interested in working with them, we can guide them through that process. And we ask for nothing for that. It's just a service that they know they have for us to be there for them if they need that. And then the other offer that we have once a company is formed is if a company takes space in one of our incubation buildings, there's a certain level of service that we'll provide to all of them. So we have open office hours and advice on applying for grants and just general business advice that they know they can stop by and always ask for. How does your faculty engagement and Start support for your fair in terms of women and minority founders. Do you track those numbers? We don't track them specifically, but it is something that is incredibly important to us that we try to do that. We're always looking for more female founders and female CEOs. We've been doing very well lately. The last couple of CEOs we've hired have been female. So it's very important to us. The challenge is a lot of it, the candidate pool, that a lot of the candidates that come in are white male and so we need to do as much as we can to get the message out there of what we're looking for. And one of the big things that's important to me and always has been in building this program has been focusing on people that maybe haven't been a CEO before, because it is such a difficult game to get that title. And so if we can help people to achieve that, and it's one of my selling points, because when we form these companies, they're not funded yet. And so I can't offer a cash salary to the CEO. We pay them in equity. But what I do offer is a chance to be a CEO, and that is attractive. So that six months, nine months, a year from now, maybe the business doesn't work, but they can always say, I was CEO of a spin-up company at the University of Pennsylvania. And I think in terms of equity and diversity, that's really something that we can do to help people break that barrier and get that on their resume and lift them to higher heights after this. That's really interesting. I don't think I've spoken to anyone else who's approached the problem in that way and kind of used that as a a way of attracting people that might not have necessarily wanted it otherwise. I talked to a group that offers mentoring services and I said, where do you get your mentors? And they said, oh, we only pick people that have been a CEO before. And I said, well, then I have to believe that your pool is almost all white men. And they were like, oh, yeah, I, I guess it is. And it's like, well, you know, 
you can't do that, right? If you're only looking for people who've been a CEO before, you're going to miss a lot of great talent. Yeah. It kind of presumes that someone who hasn't been a CEO doesn't have an interesting story to tell, which I don't know if how, being a CEO is necessarily the person you want to speak to all the time either. Like it's. <laughs> well, we do appreciate that people taking risks. And I always like to see people who have failed before because you learn a lot from failure. And so that's important to me. But you know, we want to try to give a chance to everybody. And fundamentally, at the stage of development that we're working with in these companies, what we really need is someone who's a leader, someone who's very driven, and someone who knows how to manage things and be able to be organized. Those are all great traits, but you don't have to have been a CEO to have those traits. Yeah. Do you run any specific programs trying to get more engagement from your women and minority researchers at Penn? We don't have specific programs, but we've had good luck at attracting, especially female founders in. I, I wish we had more diversity in regard to other ethnicities, but certainly female side, we're, we're very keen on that and trying to help them and mentor them and, and get them more involved and get them more interested in starting companies. How does your own team or PCI more broadly fare in terms of equity and diversity? That is highly important to me. I have an incredibly diverse team. Right now, it happens to be that I have all women working for me, not truly by design, but certainly something that I felt was important that if there is a woman candidate who is very qualified, I'm probably going to lean in that direction to, to give more women opportunities. So yes, I live by what I say and, and my team is very diverse. I have actually people from all over the world right now on my team and a lot of diversity. So yeah, that's, that's something I really strive for. That's brilliant to hear. You can't really change being a white man if you've <laughs> ended up in a position of power. So yeah, giving women and others opportunities to rise to the ranks is a really good way of making sure that you're not just staying white men at the top of the organization. Yes. Yes. It's, it's hard to be ambitious and yet conscious of where you are and the advantages and the privilege that we certainly have as being a white man. What are, this is a big question, but what are the opportunities in Penn's ecosystem? Yes. In the past 15 years, you know, as I've been here at Penn, it's been an amazing time to be here. Penn has put itself out there as a leader in cell and gene therapy on the life sciences side. And now with the coming of COVID, our work in mRNA research has bubbled to the top of a lot of what we're doing. In those areas, I think Penn is one of the top universities in the world in research. And certainly we have commercialized several technologies in those areas. And then on the engineering side, uh, we're very much into autonomous robotics. So we have a couple of robotics companies that are doing exceedingly well. We have one that's achieved level four autonomy in a flying robot. Wow. They actually do a lot of work in mines because their robots can work completely on their own. And so we can put them two, 3,000 feet underground and they don't need any help from anybody else to do what they need to do. That's cool. Um, and so that's a, a great young company. Yeah, it's doing very well. Called Exxon Technologies, just to give them a plug. <laughs> that's really cool. On a related note then, what are the challenges that you face in Pennsylvania? The challenges are probably fairly typical of what other people have in terms of finding great talent, finding money to build these businesses. Some businesses are easy to raise. We find that investors run in packs. And so there's some technologies that get very attractive and we have multiple investors that want to invest in those. And then there are other areas that the pendulum swings and we find that they don't get as attractive. So 
Like we have a portfolio of diagnostics companies that I think could really help benefit people around the world. And right now, they're just not in favor. And so no matter what kind of diagnostic it is right now, we have difficulty getting them the funding they need to get to a commercial product. Is it usually local investors that come to you or do you attract them from all over the US or even internationally? We're actually exploring global relationships. A lot of our capital has come from Europe and overseas. We have Asian investors. It's very much a global operation. And to some extent, uh, the pandemic has helped in that manner because Zoom is so much more readily used and recognized that now we can have conversations and diligence opportunities with investors that don't have to be here. And so that has opened up a lot more opportunity for us. But we've always explored internationally and have relationships with people all over the world. When you do recruit people for your spin outs or even for your own team, do they tend to be local or is that again a, a job of looking wherever you can really we tend to look wherever we can uh, we recruit across the united states for candidates we prefer to find people locally i want to you know give people benefits to, to be a part of this in the city of philadelphia but also we want to attract talent to philadelphia it's important to us and so i have a new candidate starting on monday and she's coming here from oklahoma which is great and one of my team members right now lives in New York City, so she's not even living in Philadelphia, and that's fine. It all works. In this environment today with a hybrid workforce, we can make it all work. Yeah. Are there any opportunities that you think you have in tech transfer or research commercialization today? Any unexplored or unexploited areas that you could still grow in? I think there's still an opportunity for us to do more around company functions and, and building companies. From Penn's perspective, we today do not have an ignition fund, you know, a startup capital fund. I think that's definitely something that we could be doing that would help some of these companies at the beginning stages. So many of them need just a little bit of money to build a prototype, to do a mouse study, to get a software application off the ground. It, it just doesn't take a lot. And if we had that little bit of what I call ignition capital, I think we could do a lot more. Um, so I'm working on that. We'll see if we get there. Yeah. It's interesting to hear that. I hadn't even really noticed that when I was researching the questions for this, that there wasn't really a font like that for spin-outs. I'm kind of surprised now that you've mentioned it, that I didn't <laughs> notice it. But Yeah, it's a little bit of a thorn in my side that we don't, because even one of our universities that sits right next to our campus just announced last month that they were developing a fund. So now I feel very much at a loss that even they have one and we don't. It's something that we're working on and we're thinking about here at the university, and hopefully we'll get there. I don't know, maybe you can use the fact that the neighboring university has got a fund now to uh, maybe spur on <laughs> your own administration. I use lots of different strategies to try to motivate them. We'll see. I understand where they're coming from and the priorities of the university. And I'm extremely grateful for all of the support and funding that they've given this operation. We have one of the largest, if not the largest ventures team across the United States. You know, I have a team of six people. And so the university has been incredible to me and the support they've given me over the years. So I'm not here to complain, but certainly, yes, I want to try to get to a point where we have a fun. If Drexel can do it, Penn can do it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Perhaps on that note, then, what are the challenges facing the profession today? In general, it's just trying to give all of these technologies a chance. 
finding ways to bring them out to the marketplace as efficiently as possible, be as creative as we can to see opportunities where they might not be completely obvious. It's actually one of the real strengths I find in our program. What we try to do is having faculty bring us technologies and us helping them to understand what it means for them to be a business. So we had one faculty member that came to us with a new way to produce hydrogen. And I said, well, okay, that's great, but that's the technology. What's the business? And he said, well, you could put the hydrogen with a fuel cell and now you've got clean energy. So, okay, that's great, but it's still not a business. And then we hired a CEO and the CEO said, well, you could actually put this device on the top of a drone and it could fly for hours instead of minutes. And I'm like, okay, now we potentially have a problem. Drones don't fly long enough. Now we have a solution, our fuel cell that generates through hydrogen. And that's what my team tries to do is to take it from technology to business. And I think that's really a big aspect of what we do that we can help them back with is help them understand how their technology fits within a commercial setting. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess it's hard sometimes knowing what the product is if you've spent years of your life or sometimes decades of your life researching the technology. It's, it's hard to then see the real world application that you could sell to someone, which is the whole point of creating a company, of course. Yes, and it's all about identifying that problem and that's what we try to help them to do. Outside of Penn, you have a keen interest in Eastern Europe, particularly Romania, uh, which is how we originally met. We connected over some interest in Romania. Is there something that you think Penn or the US more broadly could learn from Romania? So my experience over there was accomplished through a program run by the State Department where they invited a fellow to come over and join my team for five weeks. And then as a benefit for doing that, they offered me the opportunity to go back and spend time in their innovation ecosystem. And what I found when I went over there was an incredibly well-educated, motivated workforce of people that want to build a bigger, better country. And I was just in awe of how hard they're all working to see that happen and incredibly motivated by them. I look at that and I see the United States and I have to say, I feel like we're soft compared to how hard they're working, how motivated they are. I feel like we have a lot to learn about what we used to be like and what we should be like in terms of imitating their behaviors and how hard they want to see success happen having to have this kind of get up and go attitude. I guess that is very American kind of going out and doing it, whether you have the funding for it or not. <laughs> I definitely, I still feel like the United States is very much a risk-taking culture. And I think that's wonderful. And, and I think entrepreneurship has really taken off in the last uh, 20 years here in the United States, which is fantastic. And so I definitely see aspects of that kind of a mindset. I just saw it everywhere in Romania that everyone was so motivated and wanted to see it happen. And I just, that's a ton of respect for them and, and the people there and what they're trying to accomplish. Is there something specific that you would like to teach them? If there was one thing, I would say it was to not fear failure. Now here in the US, we almost take pride in having failed at something. We hired a CEO recently and somebody said, what was she doing before this? And we said, oh, she was at a company, but it didn't work out. It failed. And that was like one of the reasons that they hired her for this new position. And I just found in talking to people in Romania that failure is still a serious topic that you don't want to fail. And it's something that you really feel bad about when you fail. And I feel like culturally in the United States, we've gotten past that and almost take pride in our failures and tell stories about our failures. 
and learn from them and get ready to do it again. Like that's part and parcel. If you do it once, you've learned now how to do it better the next time. Yeah. I think that is a very hard lesson to learn. I, I think even here in the UK where I am, it still struggles a little bit with a failed business doesn't mean that you can never do it again. You have no capacity to run a business. No, like sometimes a business fails for, I mean, hundreds of different reasons why a company might not succeed. And Well, having been a part of now uh, 250 companies spinning out of the University of Pennsylvania, I have seen so many creative ways that a company finds a way to fail. So <laughs> yes, it, it, it amazes me sometimes of like, well, I didn't see that one coming. So they, there are so many reasons why a company can fail and have nothing to do with the ability of the CEO or the management team. But even if it is, it's an opportunity to learn, not an opportunity to stop. And I never want to see somebody give up just because the first one didn't work. That's an opportunity to try again. Yeah, you learn from mistakes. As you said, 250 companies. You've been with PCI Ventures since 2009. You previously worked for Newspring Capital, Apex Partners, and GE, where you were at GE Equity, among other jobs. What first piqued your interest in university innovation and what attracted you to Penn specifically? Well, certainly the opportunity to work on technologies that are almost on a level of science fiction. There are things that we're working on here that absolutely amaze me on a regular basis that and that I get to see before the rest of the world does. One company that I'm spending a lot of time on right now as actually the acting CEO of it, hopefully eventually the full-time CEO of it, is uh, working with a faculty member that has figured out how to put human proteins into plants and grow the plants to the point that then humans can consume the plants and get the medicine. It's just science fiction. Like To think that somebody could actually do that and hopefully someday be able to deliver shelf-stable insulin through this process because he can actually grow insulin in plants. And to be able to go to his lab and look down and actually see a plant and he'll say yeah, that there's insulin growing in that plant is just absolutely amazing. And to get to play a part in that is truly exciting to be here and to get to do that. So yeah, that, that keeps me here. And, and also the impact, you know, we have a phase two cancer drug that we're working on and uh, to see patients achieve unbelievable results of, of taking this medicine is just so thrilling. I have a patient that was very close to dying and that was two and a half years ago and she's completely cancer free today. It's just really exciting to be a part of something like that. And so, yeah, it's the great place to be. The university is unbelievably fantastic. And we feel like we're on top of the world right now and where we're operating and what we're doing. And so to be a part of that and to be a part of such a big organization is really an honor. And I appreciate that. We'll see whether, you know, maybe my company Philopharma takes off and maybe that's what I do next. Um, I'm exploring lots of different options of where my career is going to take me. But it, it, all the time I've spent here has been well worth it. What are some of the changes that you've seen over the course of your career to date? Certainly at the university, you look back, even when I got here, I felt like this was still part of the culture of thinking that a university is the ivory tower of research. It's what a lot of people refer to Penn as. By that, I mean a culture where we're here for higher learning, not for commercialization, and that working with industry was crass and led to conflict of interest and things like that. And to see that culture change over the last 15 years has been really amazing. And I give Penn a lot of credit for getting behind that movement and really embracing the idea of entrepreneurship and commercialization here and the opportunity to generate 
companies and thereby benefit society through all of this work that we're doing. That culturally has been a huge shift. And I'd say the, the other shift is the motivation of universities moving towards startup companies. When I joined Penn, nine out of 10 of our licenses were to large corporations. And today it's more like one out of 10. So we're doing a lot more with startup companies than we were ever doing before. And, and yes, sure, that's a little bit of my input, but it's culturally as well. I think you know, large corporations aren't doing as much basic research as they used to do. And so they're looking to universities to develop these technologies further to the point that they look more like products that they can sell to the market. And so we have to find a way as a university to be able to meet that demand and starting companies is how we do that. Does that mean that quite often your startup companies would be acquired early-ish on rather than becoming massive companies themselves? That's really the objective and goal. When you think about even therapeutics that we're building, some people say, oh, well, if you're going to work on a therapeutic, it could take you 15 years to get to the end. And I say, yes, that's true for the drug to get to the end, but we're going to exit out much, much sooner than that. We're going to try to partner these assets earlier in their development because ultimately, again, the purpose of our group is to commercialize technology. We're not here to maximize profit. It's to get technologies out to society and make sure that everyone benefits from all the research that's going on here. You know, our government in the U.S. puts a lot of money into Penn, and we want to do more than just publish papers for them and for, and for the people of the United States and people of the world. And so we want to try to build these businesses as quickly as we can and hand them off to people with more resources and more experience to be able to take them all the rest of the way. Yeah, that makes sense. And certainly, as you said, therapeutics, there are kind of established ways once a company gets to phase one like trials get exponentially more expensive and more complicated to run so it definitely makes sense for a pharma company to then come in and swoop them up and they've kind of proven that there is potential for the drug to really work yes yes definitely some of our medical devices we've been very fortunate we have four fda cleared medical devices and those we've taken all the way to fda clearance and then we're handing them off as we start to go commercial so each technology is a little bit different. The robotics companies have gone all the way to commercial. We have both of our significant robotics companies are doing extremely well and revenue generating and venture backed and everything else. So it depends on the technology, how far we go with it. But, but yeah, in general, we want to try to hand these off sooner rather than later. Which again, I think is quite interesting because here at the UK, they are trying, well, government policy seems to be that they want more unicorns perhaps ignoring the fact that that is not necessarily always the way forward for a startup. You know, it's, it's not. And we have our fair share of unicorns. We're very fortunate at Penn that we have had them. But there's so much else technology here that has a place in this world. And so it takes a lot of our effort and as a group and really justifies my group's existence that those are the technologies that need our help. The big ones, the unicorns are going to get there on their own. And these the smaller ones need the support that we offer what is a noteworthy challenge that you've overcome maybe at Penn or maybe in your earlier career i would say that the challenge that we've overcome is being able to assist faculty and be able to start real companies around this kind of environment that we're not simply being a grant mill or just applying for grants from the government that we're actually building real businesses. And I think that's probably the biggest challenge of designing a system and a process by which we can do that and engaging the community in our, in the help to do that. Certainly we can't do this alone. 
I'm highly dependent upon all of the entrepreneurs that come and, and work and help us. We have a group of mentors and residents who are amazing and come and dedicate their time to helping us build these businesses. So it's really a community effort. And I think that's been the biggest challenge is building that whole process to make that work. What a challenge. <laughs> wow. That's on a related note then. If you had a magic wand, is there something that you would change about tech transfer? I would still say that we can make the process simpler and easier. It still seems too complicated to me to license technology out of the university. And uh, I think we could still do more. A lot of universities have worked on this. We at Penn have made a lot of strides to simplify the process and make it easier. But I still think all universities need to do the best they can to be faster and to be able to process things quicker because the world moves at a commercial pace and trying to help all these companies get to where they need to go. I, I think that's still a big challenge. But I think my magic wand, if I had anything to the, that I would change, would probably ultimately be for us to have a fund. So <laughs> I'll save my magic wand for that. And hopefully that will happen at some point. That would be a great use. You've already mentioned a couple of startups, including the one that you're acting CEO of, potentially full-time CEO in future. Are there any others that you would like to give an honorary mention to? There are so many that are doing so much good. As I mentioned, our company that's in, in phase one, two clinical study, uh, Linnaeus Therapeutics for an oncology product is amazing what they're able to accomplish. So many others that are really trying to do good in the world and help the company I'm working with, Phylopharma, being able to offer insulin on a cheap basis around the world would be incredible and, and really is an ultimate goal more than anything. Let's see. Trying to think of some of the others. You start to run through your mind of all the companies and all of them. And of course, you know what's going to happen after this is my companies are going to listen to this and say, why did you mention me? So I need to think about that. And they're all going to say, hey, I needed a shout out too. So I don't know. I'm, maybe I'll stop there just because there's so many that, that I should be naming. I should just start running off the names of companies to try to give them all a plug. <laughs> With 250, I imagine it's, it's hard to make a choice. <laughs> <laughs> I used to phrase this question as, what is your favorite startup? And people would properly squirm in their chairs when I phrased it like that. Yes, we love all our children. It, you know, it's, I'm so appreciative of all of the teams and how hard they're working and the effort they're putting in. We have several CEOs. One of our companies, Cogware, is uh, doing a device that allows you to read brainwaves with a dry sensor with people on the move. So it can be used in athletic settings. It can be used in marketing settings. It's got so many different potential uses. You know, our CEO there, David Yance, he's worked for several years without a salary, you know, and just the dedication effort to get to this point that now it's funded and uh, they've now got customers and it's starting to happen. It's getting paid. It's just such a fantastic uh, story to see that happen. And, you know, some of our others, Flow Bio, one of our diagnostics companies also, she has worked for several years without a salary and has been so dedicated to trying to make this happen. And we want to try to support her and, and what she's trying to do. That's amazing to me is how hard these people work and their dedication to it. I tell entrepreneurs when they come to me and we talk about working together on, on getting a company going, I say to them, there's going to be lots of brick walls that are put in front of you. And invariably they'll say, that's fine. I can climb over a brick wall. And I'm like, no, you're going to have to run through the brick wall. Yeah. Like, that's how hard this is. And finding people that are that dedicated, I'm so appreciative to all of them and all the effort that they're putting in. Yeah, I don't think I would be cut out for it. So I definitely admire people who are. Well, I have to, I have to say that taking, I 
in all the years of doing this, I've never taken on a CEO role. I've watched all the companies and certainly my boss has been prepared that someday I would pick one and that would be the one I would take. But I have to say, getting a chance to do it while I'm still here has opened my eyes to all of the challenges and really riding the roller coaster that I preach to all of our CEOs not to do is don't get too high and don't get too low. Every day you're going to think the business is going to succeed and fail at the same time. Don't ride the roller coaster. And here I am working with my company, riding it every single day. So it's great to actually get an opportunity to see this whole process from their perspective. I'm guessing it's quite a lot easier to tell people not to write the highs and the lows. And then when you're in it, it's kind of overwhelms you and you can't help but feel that way. Yes, it is. Um, and, and it's amazing that it happens in every company. If, if somebody tells you it doesn't, they're lying. And if you look at the outside, we used to talk about this when I was a venture capitalist that we would look at these businesses and you look at where they started and look where they finished and you assume there's a straight line between the two points and it never is. It's very, very squiggly of ups and downs and lots of rides on roller coasters. Hopefully it will be a high in the long term for your company. Yes, right right now we're, we're riding a high. So we want to keep that going as long as we can. That is pretty much all the questions that I had. Is there anything else that you wanted people to know about Penn before we go or Romania? Well, certainly Penn is an amazing institution, leader worldwide, and I'm very proud to be a part of the ecosystem here and be a part of what everybody's doing and to play a very small part in the overall success of what's going on here. And in terms of Romania, I hope and one of my goals is to be able to be supportive of what they're doing and to be as involved as I can be because I have so much respect for them as a people and I hope that I can actually participate more fully and we'll see how that goes in the coming months and year. Amazing. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me this morning. It's been great learning more about Penn and more about your own career as well. Thank you so much, Terry. I appreciate the opportunity. Talking Tech Transfer is hosted by me, Thierry Helis. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and peruse our archive of more than 50 interviews. This podcast is a production by Global University Venturing, a Morsonia Limited publication. You can find our website at globalventuring.com forward slash university, on Twitter at GUVenturing, and on LinkedIn as Global University Venturing. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In-Ear Production. You can find out more about them at inearproduction.com. If you have any comments or are interested in being a guest on a future episode, feel free to email me at thehelis at globalventuring.com. That's T-H-E-L-E-S at globalventuring.com. We'd also really love it if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts, and if you haven't yet, do recommend this podcast to your friends and colleagues, or maybe even share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. Until next time, goodbye. Do 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 do